The Federal Reserve raised interest rates at the highest rate in over 20 years, signaling a major shift in policy as it attempts to tackle the spiraling inflation crisis. But will this maneuver work, or is it likely to instead spark a new recession? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. very excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us for a regular weekly segment where we discuss the biggest stories relating to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm Walter Smolarik, filling in for Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, and a new hard copy edition of Professor Richard Wolff's book, Understanding Marxism, has been released. You can check that out and all of his work at rdwolff.com. Professor Wolff, let's start off by talking about this interest rate hike highest in 22 years. What's the significance of this move? And why are interest rates important? Well, there are two ways to answer your question. The first one is that they are important because of what they're trying to do. And what they're trying to do is to slow or stop the inflation that's going on in the United States. Average prices over the last year have risen about 8.5%. If you look at the first three months of this year that we have data for, average wages are going up at a rate of about 4%, which means that prices are rising twice as fast as wages, which means we are less able, those of us who get wages or salaries, we're less able to afford the rising prices of goods and services, Not to be blunt, but in the interest of time, the standard of living of most Americans is being eroded by this inflation. And since it comes after two of the worst years in American economic history, the combination of a pandemic and an economic crash, second only to the Great Depression, this is a one, two, three punch that the American working class is really suffering from, and that frightens the people who run this society for obvious reasons. And raising interest rates, which is an action done by the Federal Reserve System, the United States' central bank, is one way to try to slow or stop an inflation. And the basic idea here is very simple. If you raise interest rates, you make it more expensive to borrow. 
It means that your mortgage payment, if you're in the business of buying a home, is going to be higher than it would have been if interest rates were lower because your monthly mortgage payment includes interest. And if the interest rates are raised, well, then you're going to have to pay more for the same price of an apartment or a home than you used to to cover the higher interest costs. Exact same logic applies to buying an automobile on time. The same applies to your credit card balance that you carry, and the same will apply sooner or later to student loans. Those are the four ways that the American people are more in debt now than they have ever been, and therefore immediately are affected by interest rate rises because you're carrying all this debt. And the simple logic here is, if you make it more expensive to borrow, people will not be able to afford borrowing the way they used to, and that will give them less money to spend. And so you hope that the business community will stop raising prices because they're going to feel the effect that people who can't spend the way they used to to begin with are certainly not going to spend if the prices keep rising. Please notice that the way of stopping the inflation is slapping the economic face of the American working class. You're basically saying, we're not going to let you borrow the way you have been without charging you way more interest than we used to. So we hope you won't be able to afford to buy things and that'll bring prices down. What bothers me as an economist and a critic is that this conversation is being managed by a Democratic president in a system where the Democratic Party controls both the Senate and the House, and there's not a word, not a word, about the alternative ways you could try to bring down an inflation. And I'd like to explain, if you let me, what those alternatives are, because they're not hypothetical, they're not imaginary. All of these alternatives are things that either have been or are now being done in the United States, making it all the more stunning that they are not discussed, they are not debated. We are all supposed to go along with this one working class hurt way of dealing with the inflation. Yeah, Professor Wolf, let's go into some of that. I mean, essentially, price controls are the alternative, right? That's the alternative method, policy, prescription to deal with the inflation crisis that doesn't, as you say, have essentially at its core, as its premise, the reduction of the purchasing power of working class people here in the United States? Yes and no. Let me explain. There really are, in general, three ways of dealing with this. Let's start with the one that was imposed here in the United States by a Republican president, Richard M. Nixon, on August 15, 1971. We're not talking ancient history here. We had a bad inflation at the United States at that time, and Mr. Nixon felt compelled to do something about it. Okay, what did he do? On that date, he got on radio and television, and he said to the American people, 
businesses and workers, we're going to stop this inflation, and here's how we're going to do it. I hereby declare a wage price freeze. What does that mean? As of tomorrow morning, President Nixon told us, if you're a business and you raise a price, we will arrest you. If you're a union or a worker and you force or demand a wage increase, we will do the same. Wages are frozen. Prices are frozen. Guess what? The inflation came down like a shot. Is that an alternative? You bet. Is it one that has happened? You bet many times. Has it happened in the United States? I just gave you the specifics. Could it be done again? Of course. Do wage price freezes have their strengths and weaknesses? Yes. Just like an inflation does and just like raising interest rates have strengths and weaknesses. An honest society would present and debate the alternatives and then reach a democratic choice. We don't do that in the United States. We pretend to have a democracy. Meanwhile, the people who run this society decided to use interest rate increases and pretend nothing else existed. But that's not the only option. Let me give you the second, which also comes from American history. During World War II, the United States was fighting a two-front war against Germany and Italy in Europe and against Japan in the East, in Asia. And in order to fight that war, many resources in the United States, steel factories, land, railroad capacity, and so on, were diverted from producing consumer goods for Americans to producing war material, uniforms, guns, planes, tanks, missiles, all the rest. And Washington understood, under the leadership of Democratic President Franklin Roosevelt, that if you take a lot of your resources away from producing consumer goods, that there will be a shortage of them. In other words, we're reducing the supply of consumer goods, but the demand remains in place. The American people still wanted to eat and clothe themselves and shelter themselves and so on. So the government understood we're going to have a relative scarcity of consumer goods. Smaller supply, more or less same demand. Now, you could have let the market decide how to allocate scarce consumer goods. Here's what that would have meant in plain English. Rich people would have gone into the stores, discovered there was a shortage, and solved the problem by offering the storekeeper a higher price. That would get the storekeeper to give the scarce items to them rather than, you guessed it, to your average person, your poor person, your working class person who couldn't play that game because he or she didn't have the money to bid up the prices. And prices would keep going up until all those who couldn't afford to pay them dropped out and the scarce supply would have been allocated, distributed to the richest people amongst us, because that's 
how markets work. And that's why rich people love markets. But the federal government under Roosevelt understood that would have been a disaster. Why? Because middle and low income people, the vast majority, would have been bitter, angry, envious of the minority of rich who got the scarce consumer goods in their own hand. To make it as crystal clear as I know how, it would have meant that the price of milk, for example, got bid up so rich people could buy it for their cats, while working class families with children couldn't get milk for them. All right? The government said, we can't have that. That kind of bitter, divisive economics will undercut the unity we need to fight World War II. So here's what they did. They issued what were called ration books, inside of which there were ration stamps. And here's what they did. In order for you to buy a long list of consumer goods, meat, milk, sugar, coffee, rubber products, gasoline for your car, and many other things, money was no longer the issue. You couldn't get it unless you had a stamp for it. Therefore, there would be no point in bidding up the price of anything because the price wasn't relevant. It was whether or not you had a stamp. And then the government did something that should make many of you smile. It distributed the books according to people's needs. If you had a family with many children, you got more milk stamps than if you were in a family that had no children, etc., etc. And so this was a way to avoid the inflation that could have happened if you allow the market to let rich people bid up the price of scarce consumer goods. But I'm still not done. Here's another example, and this is going on in the United States today and has been going on for many, many, many decades. There have been particular goods that have become inflated in price. In other words, the sellers of these goods took advantage of their market situation to jack up the price, ripping everybody else off. I'll give you two examples. Utilities, electricity, oil, gas, things like that, that are supplied, are often supplied in a market by one producer. It doesn't make much economic sense to have competing electric wire lines or competing water companies delivering water to your home. These so-called utilities usually were one company for an area. And that allowed the company to say, well, I could charge you whatever I want because you got no alternative. You want water? You want electricity? You pay me. By the way, still the way it is in this country, one company in most parts deliver these things. Okay. This led everybody else to say, wait a minute, we're being affected by an inflation of this particular good. So guess what? In every one of the 50 states in this country, we've set up commissions. They're called utility commissions. And you know what they do? They have a law in every one of the 50 states that says the utility company cannot raise the price 
of whatever it sells unless the public commission, part of the government, says it's okay. You know what that is? That's an attempt to stop an inflation, and it works. And you know what else is governed in this way in this country? Insurance premiums. Every one of the 50 states has an insurance commission. And before insurance premiums can be raised, they have to go to the commission, and the commission has the right to approve or not approve. This is a way to limit price increases. Could that be extended to other products? Of course. Could it be a general wage price control mechanism? Of course. We have done it for insurance. We've done it for utilities. We could do it for anything else. Look, here's the basic problem. If you allow a small minority of people in your society, let's give them a name, employers, maybe 1% of the American population, to be in charge of setting prices where the rest of us have to live with whatever they charge, the price they charge, they're going to take advantage of that situation. We know that because they always have. And they will push the price up because that's where their profits can be raised. And that's what they're in business to get. So they are going to do it, and we're going to live with the threat or the risk or the danger of inflation. If we don't have it now, we're at risk of having it whenever the business community deems it's profitable for them to do that. Therefore, it is a simple logic, basically to say, let's debate the alternatives rationing, like in World War II, wage price freeze, like President Nixon, commissions to control prices. These are all ways of dealing with an inflation that do not involve jacking up interest rates that will affect different people in different ways. A democratic society would debate it. Our society is a media shaped by the government that is constantly telling us there's only one way to look at these issues, there's only one explanation for them, there's only one solution. It happens to be the solution that they like best and that hurts the majority of us. And that alone should make us demand that we not have a national conversation about the inflation problem as lopsidedly one-sided as this one is in the U.S. today. Yeah, well, thank you for laying all that out, Professor Wolf. I mean, for a lot of our listeners, I mean, this is probably the first time they've heard any of those solutions proposed, and that's really quite remarkable considering what a completely <laughs> dominating issue the inflation crisis right. is. Just to pick up on, on what you were saying a little bit earlier about the the undemocratic nature of this. I mean, there's 11 people, I believe, who sit on the Federal Open Market Committee, which is the body of the Federal Reserve that's responsible for making these kinds of decisions about interest rates and, and really the fundamental economic policies being pursued by the country. But there's no public oversight, really, of that group. I mean, there's supposedly congressional oversight but, you know, of course, that's mediated by an army of lobbyists. I mean, I, I don't think a lot of people in this country have a very high opinion of Congress to begin with. And it's all done really behind closed doors and in a way that is 
intentionally confusing to people. I mean, talk about just the Federal Reserve process as a whole. I mean, this is really a mechanism to make sure that there's essentially no popular participation in these crucial economic decisions that affect all of our lives. Yeah, well, that's the history of banking and money. It starts with having people need to recognize that, if you allow me, money makes the world go round. We all know that money is a crucial part. It's what many of us work for. It's what we need to buy the goods and services that we rely on. It's what we accumulate for a better life and all the rest of it. So money is a central thing in capitalist societies. And money used to be, once upon a time, something that was, quote unquote, private. That is, it was produced, literally, the coins and the pieces of paper that serve as money were produced privately, usually by banks. Certainly, that's how it was done in the early days of the United States as an independent country. The problem was that it's capitalism which means that the private enterprise that has the ability to print and distribute money, like a bank, is going to be very tempted to abuse its situation because it's in the business of making profit and manipulating the money is a way to make profit, to protect profit. So what we had, for example, in the 18th and 19th century was periodic, and we call them this, money panic or monetary panic or bank panic. That's when people were using a money and suddenly discovered that the bank that had produced that money was going out of business or was about to be closed because it was crooked or whatever it is that they were doing. And so eventually, this has happened so often in capitalism, the private was stopped and we said, no, money is too important. Money is too crucial to all of us to leave it in the hands of private enterprises because they will abuse it to make their own private profit. And so it became a governmental activity and a, a central bank, a bank of the government was given the power to control how much money there was and to offer an interest rate, that is to shape the terms on which money could be lent or borrowed from one to another. In other countries, it's called the central bank. England has one, France has one, Italy has one, and so on. In our country, we had a bank of the United States that got itself into corruption. And so in 1913, we developed a new system and we gave it a new name. It is the central bank of the United States, but we called it, oddly, the Federal Reserve, or nowadays it's called the Fed. And we gave it two jobs to do. Maintain price stability. That's a nice way of saying try to avoid either an inflation when prices all go up or a deflation when prices all go down because that causes social conflict, and we don't want that. And the second thing is, keep the economy humming. In other words, don't let prices get weird and keep people working and keep the economy going. And you're right, 
This is basically a private institution with a lot of government oversight. But very few people know what's going on. It's really an area in which professional money managers, i.e. the banks of this country, have the dominant say, with politicians kind of being brought along most of the time. The country is divided into 12 financial districts. There is a Federal Reserve Bank in each of the 12 districts, and the head of each 12 district sits on the board in Washington of the Federal Reserve, and they make the decisions how many dollar bills will be floating in the economy, how many tens and twenties and fifties and hundreds and so on, and they also determine the interest rates, and they're supposed to do that behind their closed doors for sure, in a way that maintains price stability and does a job to minimize unemployment. Their record, for those of you interested, is very spotty. Obviously, they don't manage to avoid inflation because we're in one now. And they obviously didn't manage to avoid unemployment because we've had three major explosions of unemployment in just this new century, 2000, again 2008, and again 2020, 21. So they react to these problems. They're supposed to make them less severe. They're supposed to make them last less long. That record is as spotty as everything else which is one of the reasons why you were quite correct at the beginning of this program to point out that the Federal Reserve, a year after this inflation gets underway, is now taking a variety of steps. But honestly, no one, including them, knows whether this will work or not. It's quite possible that in response to higher interest rates, that you and I have to pay on our monthly credit card bill, or that you and I have to pay in higher monthly fees for our automobile or our homes, that this will lead businesses who have to pay higher interest rate and individuals to demand more income to cover the cost. In other words, workers will press for higher wages, we see that all over the country, in order to be able to cope with the higher prices. But the businesses confronting workers who demand higher wages will in turn raise the prices even more. And so we will get into what is sometimes called a wage price spiral. In that case, the government's interest rate not only didn't have the desired result, but actually made the problem worse. Is that possible? You bet. Has that happened in the past? You bet. Are we in a situation where the one thing we can be sure about is not that this policy will work, is not that the inflation will come down quickly or ever? What we can be sure of right now is that prices are rising much faster than wages, and that hurts everyone who depends for their income on the wage or the salary that they're earning. If your wages didn't go up at least 85 to 10% from a year ago, you're behind what it is. You can't buy today what you were able to afford a year ago. 
We're going to have to leave it right there. We were joined by Professor Richard Wolf. He is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. You've been listening to The Socialist Program. We bring you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.